let's talk about it. Welcome back to Thick Radio, the podcast where we talk about gaining, feedism, and everything in their orbit. I'm James. And I'm Tim, so let's get into it. Today we are continuing our series of dinner table talks. We've got a couple of guests with us today, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves one by one. Hello, my name's Tom. Uh, I go by Southern Suter on Mastodon and Suter Southern on Recon. Um, I'm Nat. Um, I've been on uh, Thick Radio before. Um, I, yeah, it's like um, I go by Thoughtful Fetishist on Instagram and Recon. I, um, I'm also on another podcast that James was on, uh, The Bondage Gaze. Um, so that's the previous uh, rate, that's the previous Thick Radio episode I was on. This is not the first time that Nat and I have been together on a podcast. So there we go. Yeah, last <laughs> time he was hostess. It's it's always fun when people uh, uh, swap seats for a time, you know, when when you don't have to be the the host and you get to be the guest, and it's surprising how easily you're thrown off of kilter because you're used to being like, I have my questions, I'm in interviewer mode. Oh, wait, I'm it's me, I'm the one. Okay, uh, shit ha- happens to me every time. Um, but to listeners, if you have not yet subscribed to the Bondage Gaze, you absolutely must, and we're going to recommend that you do because, of course, Suda Southern here has been on an episode similarly to talk about what we're talking about today, which is the, uh, I think you refer to it as uh, suit and tie guys. Is that right? Um, that's, I mean, that's correct. That's to distinguish people, queer people who have a specific fetish for suits and ties from the um, bevy of usually cis straight menswear guys who just post outfits on Instagram for fashion and aesthetics and so forth. So um, I use the term suit and tie guys to refer to uh, that specific fetish community. And I use the term menswear guys to refer to the broader sphere of uh, more standard mainstream safe for work accounts that are interested in menswear as an aesthetic. Does that make sense? I think so. The the two do overlap and we'll get into that. But that's what we're going to be talking about today, uh, because, of course, part of participating in Bondage Gaze, listening through the back catalogue, coming across Suda Southern and being so amazed at this concept of uh, this specific suit and tie fascination, because we did have an episode previously, uh, Tim, you'll remember, we called it Fabrics and Feelings. It was sort mm-hmm. of the closest episode we had to kind of talk about the amuse-bouche broad concept of fabric and the different uses it has in fetish communities and how within gaining and feedism, it does feel a little bit like you know, we, we, we don't lean on that far too much. I think partly because as big boys and growing boys, we have a tendency to outgrow such fabrics. Um, but, you know, I personally have always found such a fascination with suits. And I think many, many, many people do um, because they do look so damn good <laughs> and especially a big boy in a suit, you know. So it's wonderful, I think, to have this opportunity to talk about uh, just the male form in a loveless suit and, 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 and talking about, I guess, maybe a more elevated and formal appearing way of presenting the male form. So listen, is everybody ready to get into it today? No, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> I was born ready. 
Fantastic. So listen, I know you touched on this a little bit before about how you distinguish between uh, menswear uh, uh, appreciators and the, the suit and tie guys, but for a more formal definition, like how do you define the suit and tie fetish itself? Yeah, it's like I feel like in just a basic manner of speaking, I mean, it's just like a fetish for, you know, wearing, uh, you know, suits and ties and everything like that, and or seeing other people in it. It's like any other kind of clothing fetish, like, you know, similar to transvestism, similar to um, leather and rubber and uniforms and all these other kinds of clothing fetishes that are out there. Um, but yeah, it's like, but I mean, with it, being a suit there's obviously the things that come with you know men wearing suits and the whole etiquette and things like that kind of related to it like it's kind of like you know just like the way you know leather people have their kind of etiquette and rubber people have their etiquette and people who like uniforms and you know military uniforms cop uniforms etc that has its own kind of performativity to it yeah i mean it really to uh to elaborate on all of that, it, it is a simply another reiteration of clothing fetishism. Uh, and one thing that I mentioned on the Kinky Boys podcast with uh, Craig there is uh, my ongoing theory that really suits and ties and leather are fundamentally the same fetish. They're just expressed in different fabrics. Um, the leather community has its traditional old guard protocol, and the suit and tie community has perhaps a more uh, widely understood version of that simply as etiquette. I mean, the source material for many guys who are trying to figure out how to wear suits and ties is essentially etiquette manuals. My first exposure to it was Emily, a 1969 edition of Emily Post, and then the Amy Vanderbilt version as well. So it turns out then that in the broader straight menswear community, there are all these etiquette guides about how to up your style game and you know how what to wear and when there's the the gentleman's gazette in particular that's not a fetish affiliated site but many suit and tie fetishists follow it because he's giving that particular site is giving this kind of etiquette dressing advice to a general audience and to those of us who are fetishists we're lapping it right up when you look at the leather community it's very distinctly queer and fetishy and all of that like it's just it, it's out in the open it's that's just what you're you what you see is what you get whereas with suits it's a lot more i don't know if this is the right word but kind of insidious of because there's people wink, who wink, wear nudge, suits nudge. every day yeah yeah it's like there's people who wear suits every day for work or because they you know something like that but then there's also people who wear it for kink and it's like you can wear a suit anywhere and it's fine like it's not considered weird or anything at all it's not people don't read it automatically as fetishy so it can be hidden in plain sight in a lot of ways it's bound up in the politics of respectability that we can trace all the way back to societies like the machine society which specifically mandated that its members wear suits and ties during their public protests so that was when uh gay men in particular were trying to distinguish themselves from the unrespectable working class queer folks many of whom were uh, drag performers and uh, trans people. So there is a kind of gender conformist, gender essentialist performativity that goes into suits and ties. And because it's bound up in that imagery of respectability, the suit and tie is kind of, as a fetish, the suit and tie has a kind of built-in camouflage. It can move in public spaces without drawing attention to itself. It's interesting you mentioned that because this is something that we mentioned with gaining quite 
frequently. Most fetishes, um, and I think this is why I often distinguish gaining as more of a sexuality and lifestyle than a kink or a fetish, because you never put it down. I wear the weight that I gain every second of every day and I walk through the world with it and it does affect how people look at me, how people treat me. And so it's interesting to know that there are other ways of presentation that, as you say, because of respectability politics, has a similar sense of camouflage. Like you can wear a suit in the world and people don't know that you are participating in your suit and tie sexuality. People don't necessarily look at me and see me participating in a fat themed sense of sexuality, you know? So I think that's quite interesting that people just don't necessarily know. They could be looking at you and have not a clue. And there is a slight thrill with that, you know? There is a slight thrill. It's not just a subversion of, ooh, like I'm being sexy in public and you can't take it. It's like, I'm being sexy in public and you don't even know what you're looking at. Uh, and that's kind of cool. <laughs> and it's also the sense that you're defining the very terms of the sexiness. Yeah. As in, yeah. you don't even understand this wavelength. It is not even registering to you. Well, and I feel like with gaining, it could be very similar to that is because, you know, a, a fat body isn't commonly read as sexy. And so, like, so it's like you can be just presenting your body as it is, like, like just feeling your oats and everything. And other people just aren't really going to understand that or accept that or something. And I, I mean, in a way, it's like wearing a suit and that kind of context kind of is like, I mean, and yeah, it's like, and then a big example of this is I've talked about this numerous times on my podcast, but like, you know, the first like leather event I attended, I went in a suit and like so many people just didn't understand it like like when i was checking into the event somebody asked me oh you look nice did you come in from work and it's like i don't fucking wear this to work <laughs> like well, like what fucking what what job i wish i had a job that like where i had to look like that in because then i mean that would mean i made like a hell of a lot more money than i do make <laughs> but yeah like and i think to nat's point i mean i've been in several leather spaces in a suit and tie and there's always the presumption that oh you just came from work or oh were you at a wedding or oh were you at a conference or something like that and I actually have gotten to the point where I enjoy playing that up and being like oh wait this isn't a leather bar I thought it was just a place to grab a quick beer oh dear oh, poor me being dragged into this den of iniquity I suppose I just should just order something and see how the cards fall you know it there's a certain dapper damsel in distress kind of act that I like to build into it that I think um I mean it's just this is um Nat is aware that I have this particular frustration as well I've been trying to get to understand the leather community more because suits and ties were always my main fetish and leather is actually a much more recent development I'm a neophyte when it comes to leather I'm very much I have a, I feel a great deal more mastery and intuitiveness about suits because I've been wearing these for over 20 years. And so I'm used to being able to play it off in a nonchalant way because I've studied how to do that. You know, the menswear enthusiast, the straight menswear enthusiasts speak of what they call sprezzatura, which comes from a, an Italian theorist uh, named Castiglione. And it's that idea of you or ju you just threw this outfit together, this old thing, and oh, it just so happens to look fabulous, but you look as though you didn't even give it a second thought. And I think um, you can kind of 
play that up in a wink wink nudge nudge kind of way when you're wearing a suit and tie in a fetish space because most people don't understand it as fetish and you can kind of get away with it i love that um i'm i'm curious to to ask you like because uh, as someone who i i like the look of a suit but i couldn't tell you shit <laughs> about cuts and designs and whatnot but i definitely think that you know how we see suits now like the 90s and 2000s kind of styling obviously very diff uh very different from the vintage eras what is the difference there uh how much detail are you looking for because we could go decade <laughs> by decade if you really want to get the, it give, give me the, give me the cliff notes the cliff notes version is that over the course of the 2010s everything was very much Mad Men inspired. So if you think mid-century stylings of suits, it's narrow lapels, a very skinny, tight cut, uh, skinny ties. So everything is very, very, very trim. What we're seeing right now is a return to the power suiting of the 80s. So think Gordon Gecko, uh, braces, uh, bold striped pin, uh, bold striped French cuff shirts, uh, big lapel suits, lots of like Wall Street kind of power suiting. But at the same time, this is where there's an important uh, distinction here. Among the suit and tie fetishists, they like to camp up that whole power suiting thing. Whereas the menswear guys are actually taking it in a much more toned down direction where they're blending elements of the traditional suit and tie outfit with what we might call streetwear. They'll wear, you know, a beautiful suit with a polo shirt and sneakers, for instance. And the suit and tie fetish guys absolutely deplore this look, by the way. It is universal among them that they absolutely hate this trend. Then I'm never going to fit in because that's that's pretty much how I would wear it. I'm, I, I've never felt very comfortable in a suit. The last time that I wore one, like a full suit, was my sister's wedding. And sure, I looked, I thought I looked okay. I don't really, you know, I, I don't know. I'm one of those people who doesn't think that he looks good in a suit, but... Um, <clears throat> It really came down to comfortability. I don't know how anyone can wear that every day, all day. <laughs> Truth is, most of us don't. I changed right before logging into this podcast. I mean, it's there. there's a kind of, I think social media plays a role in this because there are many suit and tie fetish guys on Instagram in particular who are essentially posing as straight menswear influencers and pretending that, you know, they suit up 24 seven. The moment they get off camera, they are back into a t-shirt and shorts. Uh, it's, you know, this is, uh, I think social media allows them to craft a particular image and there's a kind of thrill that goes into maintaining the fantasy of it as though you're Downton Abbey character or some shit. Yeah. It's like, I mean, that's why there's a real sort of kind of drag element to it. So like, just like a little tidbit, like I used to do drag a lot, like when I was in college and everything and it's funny because getting back to that leather event i attended in a suit like i was wearing you know pretty high-waisted like slacks and suspenders and all of that and everything i only wore that for maybe a total of like four or five hours or something but i was fucking exhausted like after that bit of time once i got home and got undressed and then i had very familiar marks all over my body from just like you know like from having like a tight like waistband and you know just different kinds of things like that and my feet hurt from wearing you know dress shoes that long and everything like it it felt very reminiscent of getting out of a corset and getting out of heels and getting out of all of that shit like it's i mean there there is a drag element to it like there's something impractical about it but that's almost 
kind of what makes it fun. I agree. Like, it, it's probably one of the few things that RuPaul, you know, like, RuPaul's trying it with this whole, like, fucking guru bullshit. But it's one of the few things that she's ever said that I actually do genuinely agree with. The whole, you are born naked and the rest is drag. Like, what is your drag? Like, I think for gainers, our drag is oftentimes undersized clothing, hairstyles and facial, uh, facial hairstyles that suit certain archetypes. And obviously for suit and tie guys, it's a suit and tie you know i mean i think we even talked about this now on your episode regarding bondage you know there's a little bit element of you know even the 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 style of the gag is almost part of the drag you know like is it a leather strap or is it you know a fabric gag is it a toy is, is the mouth stuffed what's the rope or cable or cord being used what's the look as they're being trussed up like a turkey like the whole the whole thing it's really interesting when you deconstruct it that so much of what we do no matter what group you're talking about is presentation and performance to matt's point about you know how it does really feel good to get out of it um there are a number of leather folk who have also remarked that they can't really do the gear 365 thing when they're in full you know bluf regalia they're actually after an hour or two they're actually waiting to get it off um because it doesn't breathe i mean for god's sake yeah. let's that's that's like wearing an entire cow skin all over your body like that yes, is going to be hot say, as hell and this is to say nothing of latex and rubber i mean i was just about I, to say drag queens and latex the peeling motion the whole uh but see i love that feeling that's why i'm into latex oh. the way i am because i love as much as i love the feeling of it being on and being a second skin i love peeling it off after a couple hours you're just like mm. i think bloody banana Ooh. <laughs> you, you okay. find it appealing it's funny mentioning all of this because so a guy that i've kind of talked to for a while online who i just met um at the last and leather event um that i went to um iml this spring he like he i mean okay like he's he's just a full-on clothing fetishist like his suits are just everything is just on point like he has a fucking whole collection of different kinds of like cop uniforms and military uniforms and things like that like even when he just dresses casually like i mean he's a very beautifully fit man and everything and but like even when he's dressed casual it's like it, you could tell that there's there's thought into every little detail of like shit he's wearing and everything like that and um i remember at one of the parties we were at for the leather event he kind of brought up how he wore his like his best um you know full bluff like leather outfit to you know one of the things at the leather event and he said so many people asked him like oh yeah it's like do you get tied up in this often or something like that and he was just like no like what the fuck like this it's so unflexible it's so heavy it's so hot and sweaty it's so all of these things that it's like of course people who don't fully understand the logistics of that would think oh yeah that's a perfect outfit to get tied up in and those things just go hand in hand and he's just like no like this this is just for looks this is just for walking around the market and looking pretty and stuff like that it's not it's not for anything practical like a number of the suit and tie fetish guys i'm thinking about tim's point earlier there is a particular fetish for the constriction and discomfort of the clothing itself. And I do think that that's worth addressing here because this probably is something that traces over into all manner of clothing fetishism, um, namely that uh, the clothing itself becomes a kind of prelude to bondage. I mean, if you think about all the elements of the suit and tie, and that is aware that I have a whole theory behind this, that the suit and tie is basically a do-it-yourself do kink fetish kit. You know, the tie itself is always bound around your neck. It could double as a leash. It could easily be ripped off and turned into uh, a makeshift uh, 
uh, makeshift wrist bondage, though uh, I, I'm pretty sure Nat can attest to this. Silk actually doesn't tie very well when you're trying to use it for bondage. It, it just doesn't work. Um, nice look, but it actually doesn't work. Uh, but there are a number of other elements of the suit and tie, such as sock garters, such as suspenders, that all are all kind of like visual references to bondage, essentially. So there are people who really enjoy that sense of constriction, particularly around the neck. And this could trace over to things like breath play or um, the suit. I mean, this is another formulation that I have about suits and ties, which is that the suit could be, the suit and tie could either be an armor of dominance, which is how it feels when I put it on, or for many other guys, it could be a uniform of submission, as in you put this on and you are the uh, compliant little office drone waiting to be uh, used by the boss at the end of the day. Have you ever had an instance where, because <laughs> I just had, a, you know, one of my stupid thoughts, um, you know, where you're dressed to the night. See, because I keep thinking, like, if I was out in public with you, Tom, it'd be like, it'd be like Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle. <laughs> so, like, has anyone ever done that? Has anyone ever been like, you know, they kind of want to be the slovenly, slobbish one next to you who's all, like, pristine and perfect? <laughs> Again, we're talking about, you know, the gaining intersection today. Is this, the, are you shopping around for one? <laughs> I mean, you in the market for a piggy? <laughs> I, I absolutely can see the appeal of that because so much, you know, this is something that Nat noticed with, we, Nat and I have had numerous, numerous, numerous conversations, but he noticed that I repeat the word juxtaposition a whole lot when I'm talking about fetish. And so for me, it's about disparity and juxtaposition. Um, there's, I, I take a particular delight in that kind of high and low contrast. Um, and so I would totally, I, I would totally see that as really hot, actually, that kind of just you know, the, the whole white collar, blue collar thing definitely plays into this too. So it's, um, so to Tim's point, uh, have I experienced that specifically as a fetish? Not purposefully, but uh, I could definitely get into that actually. Nat, what do you think? Like, okay, on that note, okay, so I'm not thinking of like a full contrast of like basketball shorts and a t-shirt versus like a three-piece suit or something like that like I feel like that is too contrasted but it's like I don't know something I like whenever I notice groups of people who are going to a conference going to a wedding going to something and there's different levels of suiting like everybody is kind of dressed appropriately for it but then there's the guy and like cheap chinos and an ill-fitting wrinkled like button down tucked in and whatever and it's like you could tell he just sort of wore it because he sort of had to and it was expected of that versus like the guy who's like completely like everything is on point like everything is pressed and it's worth noting that tim was just pointing at himself <laughs> just thought i would point that out yeah because i mean I, I i hate to make it sound like i don't like i care about my appearance but when it comes to like having to dress up because i've had to do it so much for like weddings church events like all these things were you know my and my mother loved to dress me up like a little homo so <laughs> you know I, I guess I just I have this thing against like formal wear at this point and I just don't think I look good in it I was I was gonna say it's funny you mentioned you can tell the people who dress up because they have to and typically speaking that guy is a fat guy 
typically speaking, he is, and you can see him, you know, he's typically, you know, middle-aged, gone to seed, gone to pot, you know, you can almost tell that the suit he's wearing is either the suit he wore one time 10 years ago that is ill-fitting and he's just completely outgrown it, or it's the sad rental that they had left over for him. And when I see that, and I went to a wedding just a short time ago, that is the hottest fucking thing to me because for me, even my appreciation of suits, it's always filtered through the gaming lens. And so it's seeing, you know, in a sense, the quote unquote ruination of the suit because of the body, a body that is so fat, you know, all those nice clean lines can't function properly because the body is so big and fat that all those lines just get blown out of proportion. It's seeing the apron belly in like a button down white shirt and just thinking about all those different bits and pieces, my God. I, when I was at this wedding, I may or may not have had to have run off to the bathroom to jerk off thinking about this one man who just was too big. He was so big, so beautiful and just struggling. And all I wanted to do was just there in the pews, just suck his dick. Do you know what I mean? It's like when you just, when you feel overcome by such a desire and I'm like, I am not a horny 15 year old anymore. Like I am a 30 year old man. I am meant to be better than this. And yet, no, I'm there cranking one out in the, in the wedding bathroom, like trying to get myself together. Okay. And then, uh, okay. So like on this, I feel like, okay. So I feel like there's two different things here. Like with like what I'm talking about, like, okay. Cause there was like one sort of on the more casual level, like when I was in college, something I, observed a lot because you know of course a college campus is going to be full of all kinds of you know white middle to upper class preppy people and everything like that and even noticing like you know like um you know young men who are from i guess a little bit more affluent families and so they could buy more name brand clothes and kind of you know fit that sort of norm but like they don't actually know what they're doing because they have no sense of style or anything like that so it's like what what they're wearing and buying is like good quality clothing but they don't know how to wear it like the clothes <laughs> the clothes are wearing them in a way and stuff like that and so i feel like that translates to different kinds of forms of suiting and everything like that which i mean yes it can be a fat guy but it can also it, it can also be like anybody like because so many you know men aren't as pressured to be stylish or anything like that as women typically are so men could be a little bit more slovenly with those types of things and everything like that on, uh, and then on, on another aspect like getting to like fat bodies and everything is I mean, I've written several blogs in the past sort of about this and everything, but like how I feel like the way a lot of fat bodies and bears and people like that are kind of sexualized is they're usually like naked. They're usually naked or dressed in a very working class kind of way or like in a jock strap or something revealing. It's not as common to set, you know, put them in a suit or, you know, fully clothe them in like a nice way and like sexualize them in that way. like because that kind of seems a little bit more desexualized. And I, I, I mean, you know, I feel like it still happens with guys of other body types, but, um, but yeah, it's like, but I feel like people are more willing to read like a muscle guy in a suit as sexy and everything like that. Like, I mean, so to Nat's point, talking about different levels of suiting, I mean, you could, we can go into the details if you want to, but basically the, the implication here is that the suit and tie fetishist knows how to put it all together perfectly and play the part of this, you know, head honcho CEO kind of person who lords it over everyone else. That would be on the dominant side of things or on the submissive side of things. He has his dress, his dress code prescribed for him by some other dominant. Um, 
and this of course plays out in terms of a boss because hello offices but uh on the point of um body types and tailoring i think it's also worth noting that in order to have a suit correctly fitted to a larger body it has to be custom made and that is really 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 expensive and um it would have to be made in such a way where there is actually extra fabric built into it so as to allow for weight fluctuations so that the suit could be tailored, which also costs money, by the way. So there are ways to do it, but I think to kind of uh, complicate Nat's point here, yes, I can see how it reads as working class, but if you turn this back several decades or maybe even a century, the whole figure of the fat cap capitalist, the whole figure of the overfed banker who is immaculately tailored in pinstripes with his belly you know playing tug of war with the buttons of his waistcoat um there's a sense of um richness and uh conspicuous consumption that i think can be read into this as well i mean we still see it today anytime you play a game of monopoly mr moneybags is the quintessential character yeah. You know, money bags. you know, for many of us who grew up with some variation of Thomas the Tank Engine, the fat comptroller, you know, I think we've always been accompanied by, you know, larger men of size and stature that I think, as I say, with gaining, it's a bit difficult because we are in the nature, we are in the business of growth and expansion, you know, an ironically capitalist idea that does fall in line with the you know, fat cat ideals of yesteryear. But you know, it's uh, it's nice to know that there are ways for for us to ach achieve a certain look. But I do want to circle to something here because um, <clears throat> this has come up in recent weeks, and so what a funny time that we're going to be talking about this today. But there is, and I will allow you both to uh, explain the history of this, an unfortunate link between suits and um, Nazism and the history of certain things. Uh, if y'all would like to walk us through, because I said, and to be clear to everyone here, right, this is not to say that like suits were invented by Nazis. However, uh, it is my understanding that like when they were invented, this was basically because by the time of the industrial revolution, when the middle class emerged, they were like, oh, the only like formal attire for a man is a military uniform. And so we kind of need something else that men can wear as a formal that is not a military uniform. And so designers kind of took military garb and picked it and unpicked it and repicked it and did all this whoop-de-woo until, until eventually we got to the concept of a suit. And this became the new uniform of, of the middle-class man. Um, but I, I think it starts with Hugo Boss, of all people. Is that right? To, to James's point... Yes, Hugo Boss plays a role in the story, but if you trace the complete history of the suit all the way back, its earliest origins would be in 17th century empire, Prussian uniforms specifically. So the suit and tie, if you look at paintings of say, Charles II of England, or any of a number of late 17th century monarchs, they're wearing a shouldered coat with sleeves and you know lace and buttons and all that stuff if you sub if you squint a little bit and mentally subtract all the tiddly do's and frills and things it is it is fundamentally the same silhouette as a modern suit jacket and that same silhouette has gone more or less unchanged 
for over 300 years. And it is always um, a silhouette that is intended to create a sort of artificial hourglass shape around the waist. It broadens the shoulders and it emphasizes the chest. It is militaristic. And so that's, there's that deep connection between suits and leather and military that goes very, very, very far back. Um, in the late 18th century, of course, a number of uh, political dynamics uh, sparked by the French Revolution made it so that um, the suiting style changed, the trouser lengths were changing and so forth. You had more of the riding boots and the tailcoat. There's the Beau Brummel influence where he dandified it to the nth degree. And then there's the later 19th century Victorian reaction against that of, trim of trimming down all the frills and excess and settling on sober plain colors like navy and charcoal. Um, because if you look at 18th century students, it's pastels and brocades and everything like that. But if you look at 19th century, it is very, very, very pared down. And so um, in the Edwardian era, you started getting increasing levels of structure in the, in the shirts with uh, the detachable collars um, and all of these uh, silhouettes that were meant to emphasize a very rigid posture and so forth. By the time you get to the 1930s in the Weimar Republic, that's when you start getting into um, what would later become the Nazi party. Uh, and in their early years of propaganda of trying to win the election and so forth in the Weimar Republic, uh, many of many members of Hitler's party would uh, strut around in you know, these very, very immaculately tailored uniforms. Hugo Boss played a role in designing those uniforms and they were meant to look muscular and pristine and razor sharp and crisp. And they were meant to be a reaction against the supposed decadence of the Weimar Republic. That long history of imperialism and power and structure and masculinity and uh, militarism all blend together in the 30s to create essentially a modern fascist uniform. And this is where the Hugo Boss of it all comes in, right? Correct, yes. This is also why I don't wear Hugo Boss, because there is an actual there is an actual connection there. And it's also worth noting that the Windsor knot, named for the Duke of Windsor, the double Windsor and the half Windsor, he was a he was a Nazi sympathizer as well. There's a whole episode of The Crown about that if you're interested. But anyway, Nat, you've been you've been sitting on a thought for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, I mean, the first thing I immediately thought of is, okay, so uh, on this podcast, you guys have referenced James Somerton several times, um, and he does have a video about body fascism and everything, and also in a, an article I recently shared with James um, that, I, that I've written about fat drag queens, there is a portion where I, I reference uh, Foucault, where he talks about, like, the militarized body, which basically is, like, a representation of you know basically like a fascist body because it's like it, it just gets into the whole eugenics kind of I don't I don't, I don't know like you know superior human and su superior race type of shit and everything like that but yeah it's like like so how he makes that connection of like the very toned and trimmed body that's just kind of you know emulates control discipline power control different kinds of things like that like I do kind of see a little bit of a relation between that and like a suit because a suit is like a clothing a clothed version of that body and everything so it's like yeah it's like so i mean that was the sort of dot that i was gonna connect there which 
you know, when you bring in um, like fatness and things like that, it is sort of a foil to both of those things sort of in different ways. Like it's, it's interesting because um, again, referencing James Summerton there, uh, this reference point because Tom of Finland was inspired by the Nazi SS uniform to create the iconic imagery that the entire leather community is based off of. I believe that Tom of Finland Foundation has actually done their best to scrub the actual, because he didn't just take inspiration from, he actually like drew artwork that uplifted Nazi ideology, I believe, and they've done their best to scrub that as a reference point and, you know, uh, things that we're dealing with in the 2020s, you know, between JK Rowling and Tom of Finland, it's like, how do you delineate a, a person who's had a major contribution to culture, uh, while also still kind of appreciating certain elements, right? Like, it's a big thing to do, but... It's a hard conversation to have about separating the art from the artist. It's one that I think people come back to all the time. Like, if you look at um, Wagner, <clears throat> a great composer, and is still studied to this day, and his you know, operas are replayed and everything, but horribly racist. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, my favorite uh, sci-fi author, um, you know, created an entire new genre of uh, fiction, horribly racist. Rolled down. Uh, I don't know about Roald Dahl. I don't, I've Roald... never heard anything about him. Was it Roald Dahl or one of the other ones? Uh, but somebody who was like a problematic in their person, or Dr. Seuss, it was one of those two. Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss? Okay, that's the one I was thinking of then. Dr. Seuss, everybody, sorry about that. But problematic, but... right, in the viewpoints, but still created truly iconic stuff. Uh, I was also thinking of cinema. You know, when you look at German expressionist cinema, which <clears> really set the tone for 20th century film aesthetics it it feels in many ways as though the last 80 years of the 20th century and the first 20 years of the 21st century we're still trying to figure out how to react to what happened in the 30s and 40s well and then another thing is okay with talking about cinema in america like a very foundational movie that you know, was very in techno technologically innovative for creating a movie. It's fucking Birth of a Nation, which is, a, which is, which takes just a very kind of conservative, racist perspective on the Civil War in America. Like, I mean, it's 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 all those things, and I think one of the reasons why I thought this was so interesting that we discussed today is because recently it was revealed that there were people within certain communities who had been outed as not simply signposting but actively wearing garb with insignia doing i believe the salute was what i heard i didn't see any of this i was always like i'm always late to the party with the news but this is what i'd heard and it was just like it's interesting um how but the further we get away from something and we sit in this privilege of aren't we so glad to live in a post-nazism world but yet the further we get from it people seem to forget that nazis were bad and they just go oh maybe not and then they jump right on in it, it's a little bit like with the aids epidemic you know i love the fact that our young generation of queer people do not worry about contracting HIV and things like that, but the fact that those numbers are on the rise means that actually, guys, we need to remember that condoms and taking prep is very important. We lost like 80% of our people at one point, just so that you could have access to this. Please make use of it. Um, so I feel like there is a lesson there in history will repeat itself and we need to be at the ready to not 
walk blindly into it. Um, but to take more specific focus, I mean, for the sake of, let's say, suit and tie guys uh, and how gainers can work alongside that, you know, what, what do we need to be aware of when it comes to the general naziness of it all that seems to be lurking in the corners, not so hiddenly these days, in our communities? I mean, I think, and this is to reference uh, an article that Matt recently wrote on it, as in yesterday, if I recall correctly, so fairly recent. But yeah, it's with suits and ties in particular, since the 2016 election, we've had figures like Richard Spencer and Gavin McInnes, who are, you know, these are actual Nazis, who are self-consciously wearing suits and ties as a way to distance themselves from skinheads in order to add a veneer of respectability to their ideology. Um, the suit and tie, in other words, because it is so deeply encoded with institutional power and respectability, there are a number of really horrible conservative fascist figures who are sporting the, the suit and tie in order to give their ideas weight. In oh, is this, like, is this where Jordan Peterson comes in? Yes. Uh, and I lump Jordan Peterson in with these other figures because even though he has tried to distance himself from them, every time he makes an appeal to quote unquote traditional gender norms, that's fascism. And uh, the fact that he's unwilling to see that says a lot about him. But it's because the suit and tie plays directly into these traditional power structures of masculinity and finance and politics and institutional power, it has a role to play in all this as well. And so I think uh, having listened to the What's the Safe Word podcast episode about you know not, um, Nazi imagery in the leather community, it's that fine line of, okay, are we reinforcing the power structure or are we using fetish as a way to subvert it? Nat, what do you think? Yeah, I'm like, because it's like, that's the thing. It's like, I, I feel, once again, with like what James was talking about with, you know, being in that privileged kind of side of history with it of, oh, we're safe enough from it that it has flipped. And, you know, now we can like do that and sort of make fun of it or make it gay or make it perverse or something like that. Like there's somewhat of an assumption with that, but I mean, kind of like, as I pointed out in that article you, you referenced that I recently wrote is, I mean, there's still like a white privilege in that of like, you know, these symbols and everything like that don't affect white people the way that they affect other people. And so I feel like white people are seem to be the only ones who feel safe with playing with it and everything like that. But it's like, okay, well, if Nazism came back, you probably won't be a primary target. Like, so it's like, there's, there's just kind of an imbalance right there um, with that and everything of like, I don't like, you know, and then once, okay, when this controversy first sprung up, my immediate assumption was, okay, maybe some uniform fetishist was wearing it like an army, mil you know, military-esque army uniform that reflected a Nazi uniform. And then that's what got like, people all up in arms and everything. And then once I actually saw the images that people were talking about, it was leather gear with um, Nazi insignia on it, like with like that kind of shit on it. So it wasn't even necessarily like a military uniform or anything like that without any of the specific symbols and references to Nazism. It was direct Nazi shit on leather gear. And then that's like, I feel like that that crosses a sort of different line right there, at least, at least for me, because it's like I'm somebody who understands 
the appeal of like military uniforms and things like that. But like, it's like, okay, when you actually start putting the actual symbols on it, that's when it's like, uh, like, I don't, I don't know if you need to go that far. That's a little on the nose and everything. And then, I mean, because even talking about with uniform fetishes, so um, in the middle of 2020, you know, when quarantine and shit like that was happening, there was like a big um, resurgence of, you know, Black Lives Matter related conversations and everything. Like after George Floyd was murdered by a police officer and a lot of people in the fetish community kind of like, especially people who make content we're like, you know what? I'm not gonna do anything with cop uniforms. I'm not gonna have any cop imagery in any of my and whatever I post of, you know, like stuff like that. Because um, I a feel lot like of there was a, I feel like there was a sharp decline in um, displaying strangulation play at the same time as well. Wow. Okay. See, that makes sense. But I didn't, I, I didn't know about that. But yeah, it's like, but that makes sense. And it's like, and it's like, see, the thing is with cops, it's not as like black and white as it is with like nazis because cops are in every culture and have many different looks and are in movies or in whatever like cops are just a little bit more embedded everywhere they're a little bit more normalized it's i know specifically police in the u.s have really bad history and context and everything like that but it's like you know i feel like you could get away with a little bit more with like cop role play stuff like that versus you know, when you get into Nazis, because Nazis is just such a very fucking specific thing that represents fascism and everything. Like, and I think um, I'm thinking of. Uh, I know that I keep stepping over into other podcast universes, but that's the world. That's the world I live in. Y'all live in your own podcast universes. I just traverse them all. Uh, but the Kinky Boys podcast had an episode about this, um, and it was last year before the recent events that we're describing. But they were talking about how many of the people who descend to the defense of this kind of Nazi play refer to taboo. They think that Nazism is this kind of ultimate taboo. And if they can transgress it, then anything is possible. And it allows them to posture themselves as more badass than everyone else, et cetera, et cetera. And there, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, there, there are also a lot of problems and privilege built into that position, too. Um, and so... I, I continue to circle back around to the question of when are we using fetish and kink as a way to resolve or uh, process trauma versus simply reenacting the power structures that made that trauma possible to begin with? And, mm -hmm. you know, to throw a few other elements into the conversation here. What does it mean to indulge in a fetish for suits and ties in a world of extreme income inequality? because this is the outfit of the finance class. This is the outfit of the politicians who are making the policy choices that lead to poverty. And so I'm not sure how many people have those specific politics on their minds when they look at a suit and tie, but it's still there. And how do we use fetish as a way to address or redress these problems? Well, this is ultimately where this podcast comes in for gaining because, you know, on the flip side to, to, pursue a fatter body is to idealize a minority status because you are sacrificing thin privilege to step into a plus size disadvantage. But you're absolutely right. There's questions around politics and there are access politics within fatness. There's politics around 
the difference between men and women, the ways in which men are given permission, we were talking before, to be slobbish and to be unkempt, but a fat woman could never dare to do such a thing. Existing in a fat body alone, she is already being treated as a quote-unquote failure to the female gender, let alone how dare she engage in any kind of typically masculine qualities. Fatness is often treated as a way to desexualize and also degender people, because the average fat male that you see on TV is absolutely desexed and degendered. They are comedic slobs with no personality and no brain. Their whole trope is to lift their face from a trough of slop and go, huh? And then play the laugh track. And then he goes, oh, and then face back in the muck. While the uh, thin, to the point of anemia, anxious, anxiety-ridden wife must uh, panic attack, scrape the children, and make life happen. This is the familial trope that we accept as mainstream. So there are political questions around like how we treat gender and how we treat people and inequality within all of those points. And, you know, I think if there's one thing I would want people to take away from this conversation, it is that there is a history to everything. There is a history to suit and tie. There is a history to gaining and to fatness. Fatness came from racism. And if you haven't read Sabrina Strings, Fearing the Black Body, you absolutely need to. You must do it. It must be mandatory reading for everyone, for fuck's sake. But it paints a very clear picture about how, and we can see it very clearly, the racial tropes just get reframed a little bit and then they apply to all these other people. It is the same shit all over again and people don't want to talk about it, but your activism must be intersectional. If you are here to support yourself as a fatty, You've got to be there for people of colour. You must be there for women. You must be there for queer people and trans people. You must be there for people with disabilities. You must stand with everyone. Because, you know, and funnily enough, they mentioned it on the What's the Safe Word podcast, that old adage where they mention Nazism. They came for the, the LGBT, and I wasn't one of them, so I did not stand up. And then the Nazis came, and then it was all this, and there was no one left to stand for me. Bury that. Yeah. Right? Okay, yeah, it's like because, okay, what I feel like is an appropriate subversion of that, which I have seen in the past, are queer people wearing, like, you know, like the lavender or pink, like, triangles or something of, like, because that was how they marked the, you know, that's how the Nazis marked the queer people that they imprisoned and everything like that. And that makes more sense. Yeah, the pink triangle in particular, I believe, was the emblem of ACT UP, was it not? And on season four of Drag Race UK, Cheddar Gorgeous wore a fantastic look, utilizing the pink triangle as symbolism for that. So again, like, see, reclamation. Yeah, it's like, see, with that, it's like, because it's like, that is a form of, I'm here and I'm queer. And like, kind of like showing that versus like, okay, the other fucking symbols, those are, that's the enemy. That's the person you don't want to be. That's like... That, yeah, it's like that's who you don't want to celebrate, but it's like, okay, but like, let's celebrate the queer people who are fucking victimized by this. Like, no, I was going to say, yeah, unfortunately, the days of just being able to play around on your, your playground and not, you know, care about anything that's going on in the world are, are over. Um, <laughs> everyone has to be aware of these things because if we don't, then they just get perpetuated. So, as much as I, I have heard um, specifically in the leather community, I've heard, you know, the older leather gentleman, part of the old guard establishment, kind of moaning and complaining about how much things have changed and like, oh, this isn't so much fun anymore because now people are dragging politics into it. And I just came to play. I don't care about any of this stuff. 
And I'm like, well, you're probably somebody who doesn't usually stand for anything. You're probably someone who just lets things go by the wayside, you know, because you choose like, oh, I don't want the headache of it. But <laughs> look around, dude. The world is, it's getting whipped up. Things are getting frenzy. It's where we don't, we're not living in a golden age where we can just sit back and go, oh, that's not my problem. I'm, I just came to play on the playground. No, it's, I'm sorry. I, I kind of miss it too. I have a nostalgia for when I first entered the the um, fetish spaces and no one was talking about it but i am also intelligent enough and aware self-aware enough to know that like it just can't be that way anymore i think it's worth also noting it's not that things became political things were always political we just had the position to not look at things and again that is privilege right um there was always politics in suit and tie and there's always been politics in gaining conversations around a lot of gainers expecting financial support for their growth conversations around sugar daddies and all of that kind of narrative you know people don't want to talk but we need to and we can't pass that off anymore so again if there's one takeaway from this people we need to acknowledge that there is a history with these things and we need to acknowledge that conversations absolutely must happen non-negotiable i think also these com these serious and political conversations matter and I think it also matters to think of fetish and play and fun and ways to have fun while still being mindful of these things. To put fetish and fun and play in opposition to politics is simply to reinforce that same old guard dichotomy that Tim was referring to a few moments ago. If we can show that those two things can coexist, that it is possible to be an activist and to stand up for the people who need standing up for, and also to make it look fabulous and have a grand time doing it, then is that not even more empowering? But I think that's a really great place to leave this episode. So where can we find you both online? You can find me at Southern Suitor on Mastodon, Southern Suitor on Switched. That's the, uh, that's the app that's for all of us kinksters. You can find me at Suitor Southern on Recon. And then my main website is do you wear low shoes at wix.com. That's there's a whole story behind that name, but that's the blog website where I am post uh, collecting people's uh, stories about the suit and tie fetish and trying to create a kind of archive of that. So if you want to contact me there, go ahead and feel free to do so. On, um, on Instagram, I am at a thoughtful dot fetishist um on recon i think it's just thoughtful fetishist with no characters or anything like that in it um and then yeah and then there's also the bondage gaze which yeah that has an instagram handle and um you can find it on any podcasting platform and it's also on youtube fantastic well thank you both so much for today but that is it for another episode here on thick radio please remember to like and subscribe rate us five stars and leave us a good review if you'd like this episode the podcast or just us in general share it with your friends and encourage them to tune in you can find me on instagram beefy frat stuff and show and oh my nom at stanham and you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, and Beefy Frat at Thicky Mouse. You can also look us up on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok at Thick Radio, or on our website at www.podpage.com forward slash Thick Radio. If you want to submit a voice note or become a supporter of the show, you can find the links in the show notes. And if you have any questions or ideas for episodes, you can reach us at thethickradio at gmail.com. So until next time, bye fats. 
Bye, fats. Bye, fats. Let's talk about it. Dick Radio is a Patreon and Anchor app podcast produced by Stan and Dickie Mouse. Next and Master by Stan. Our artwork is provided by Lucky 2. Our theme song is provided by Spotify Cream.